Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. Most of us would love to be fast enough runners to have the opportunity to run professionally. But what if accepting prize money for a race would result in you being banned from ever participating in another race again? That is exactly the choice that New Zealand native Anne Audain was faced with in June of 1981 at the Cascade Runoff 15K race in Portland, Oregon. And, as you'll hear, that wasn't her only legal problem at the time. After major reconstructive foot surgery at age 13, Anne went on to qualify for six Olympic teams and competed internationally at every distance from the 800 meters to the marathon. Since retiring from elite competition, Anne has stayed involved in the sport, having founded what is now the St. Luke's Fit One Race in Boise, Idaho. A few of the things that Anne and I discussed included her start in running following her major reconstructive surgery, her two very different coaches and the importance of having a plan in one's training and racing schedule, the beginnings and early difficulties of open professionalism in the sport of running, the Idaho Women's Fitness Celebration 5K race that Anne founded and how that event has evolved, and the documentary film that Anne had made about her life and career. We'd like to thank Anne for her time and wish her the best of luck in the future. As usual, any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash running interviews slash Anne Audain. So, uh, Anne, thank you so much for being on the show today. Can you start by giving us a bit of your background? Oh, well, that's kind of um, <laughs> a lot to, to try and tell, but I guess everyone could go to my website at um, anordain.com and, and see a great deal. But really, um, I uh, started running when I was 14, and I uh, came to the United States when I was 25, which was in 1981. My first kind of 10 years were... Uh, spent um, doing the uh, shorter distances of 800 and 1500 meters because that's all there was for women at that time and then everything changed in 81 when uh, the United States opened up for women to run longer distances and I found out that that was where my forte was. And so can you tell us a bit about your, uh, you had a uh probably fairly involved corrective foot surgery when you were uh, when you were young to correct something that you've been born with. Can you tell us about that? Well, there was no um, particular name to it. Um, it was all uh, up the front of my feet. Um, there was so much extra bone, um, kind of like very, very severe bunions, but they, that was not what it was. Um, but it restricted my movement up on the front part of my feet. I would not get up on my toes at all, and it was very, very painful to even try. So I shuffled around on my heels and um, couldn't really wear proper shoes either. And the doctors in New Zealand decided that they weren't going to do the surgery until I was a teenager because they wanted my bones to be strong enough to handle the surgery and recover from the surgery. And so at age 13, I went into hospital and, you know, they just really wanted to help me walk better, to be honest. But what they did was gave me a really great running style, which got me up on my toes. And um, to this day, you know, 40-something years later, I'm uh, still running daily and my feet are still doing just fine. 
and that's very very cool considering that medical practices probably weren't what they could have been when you were when you were 13 years old so and that's true that's true too but you know what they they were actual geniuses and they were ahead of their time and I think now about what would have been done and uh, what they actually did for me was created when I had the surgery and I mean I, I've got my both feet in plaster cast and they came up with an idea to get me to have the heel-toe motion of walking, and they created this black leather boot, um, which had a wooden rocker, like a rocking horse, on the bottom of each boot. And as my feet healed um, under those casts, that rocker was pushing me forward onto the front part of my feet. Now, it was really, really painful because my feet were still healing. But to be honest, what they did was push me forward where I doubt whether I would have done that on my own because of the pain. And so in some respects, I think they were ahead of their time as much as they, <laughs> I swore and cursed at them a lot. Um, <laughs> I think they really pushed me forward when I'm not sure I would have done it on my own. And especially with some of those long ingrained habits from, uh, from earlier in life. So you mentioned that obviously it would be very painful to walk. So what was it? like to be able to actually run after that? Well, when the cast came off, um, my feet looked just the same as everybody else's. And I truly found that running was easier than walking. And in some respects, it still is. Uh, I still fall back sometimes into the bad habits um, that I had. Well, I shouldn't say they were bad habits. They were necessary habits um, before I had my feet fixed when I walk. And I always joke that I'd never make a very good hiker. Um, but <laughs> they, I found that I, I uh, ran better. It was easier to run, and, uh, and that's truly what that's to this day. That's true. And so you obviously had an incredibly long competitive career. Um, was it six Olympic teams and four Commonwealth Games? How were you able to maintain at that kind of a level for that long? Well, I. Um, I don't. I think a lot of it, to be honest, had to do with my second coach. I had two coaches in my career. One was um, by the name of Gordon Purry, who was an Olympic medalist from Great Britain who immigrated to New Zealand. And he was the coach of the running club that I eventually joined after having my feet fixed. And I was under him. He had a lot of young kids um, at that club and a lot of adults too. And... Um, so he coached a big bunch of us, and really under him, I was an 800, 1500-meter runner. And to be honest, his training methods were very, it was just hard, hard, hard every day, no rest, no planning, no um, uh, kind of thought-out process in terms of what we were all going to do individually. It was everyone, you know, unto themselves every day, and, and uh, I, you know, had... Decent success under him. I ran in world cross countries and, and, as you say, went to Olympic Games. But to be honest, he pushed me so far that I quit the sport and in 1980. And a lot of that was to do with him and also the boycott of the 1980 Olympics. And I joined my second coach, John Davies, at the end of 1980. And to be honest, it's because of him that I had another great 12 years on the track and on the roads um, he completely turned my running career around and you know as much as he would say he had a great athlete I think we were a great coach athlete team um, and and found each other at the right time and uh, we had a lot of success together and so that was the longevity and that's 
that's something I've heard from a couple different people about John Davies coaching is that uh, everybody had a long career and everybody always enjoyed what they were doing. That's exactly right. I mean, he was just great, and when he passed away so young, it was just a huge loss um, to the sport, particularly in New Zealand. I'm sure. So can you go a little bit into some specifics about what your training was like under Gordon Peary? Well, Gordon, as I said, was just, he he thought it was just wonderful to do two hard workouts a day, and, and if you weren't really working hard, and, and um, I mean almost in tears from the training, then you weren't working hard enough. Um, he was a shouter, he'd yell at us and abuse us, and I mean, that was his method, was to try and toughen us up. And, and in some respects, maybe, you know, that did toughen me up at a young age where I was like, well, I'm going to show you that I can do this. Um, but I was his most successful athlete, and he used me almost as a pawn with everybody else um, to basically say, well, you know, even with the guys, if you can't keep up with a girl, we know what's the matter with you. <laughs> so he could be very abusive as well, and... Um, that was pretty tough on me. Um, it turned a lot of my club mates against me because, you know, I was so-called, you know, Gordon's darling. But in some respects, it was harder on me than anybody because he was using me to put the others down. Um, there was no, as I said, no plan to his training whatsoever. He would pull out his diaries and show us how amazing workouts that he used to do, and he was really just downright crazy, which is how he was known um, for... Uh, through his running career, even though he got an Olympic medal, um, he was really known for his crazy, crazy workouts and possibly could have even been a better athlete if he, his workouts hadn't have been so strange and, you know, just plain too hard. Um, so uh, that was really how it was under him. Yeah, kind of, um, kind of a product of his time, though. Yes, he really was. I mean, and, and he broke a lot of athletes down. I mean, when, when I joined him, he had about 40 um, at the club, and 10 years later, I was the last one left. That's pretty impressive attrition rate. So, <laughs> so as you mentioned, John Davies really turned, your, really turned your career around with, I'm assuming, a lot of planning, being, being a, an original Lydiard athlete. What, was, what were some specifics of, of that re regimen? Well, up until I'd met John, I hadn't run further than an hour. And the first day of going out with him happened to be a Sunday, and he said, "Well, oh you're now going to be you're, yeah, you're now going to be doing an hour and a half um, uh, runs, and you're going to learn how to do hour and a half runs. And so we're going to go out to the forest, and we're going to run for an hour and a half, and we're going to park the car where you can't get back to it any sooner. And that's exactly what we did." And uh, there was a big hill to go up at the end, and I was really struggling. And he got in behind me and pushed me up with his hand. And he goes, so anyway, that was the first. And yes, he was definitely a Lydia disciple. And so there was always the planning, the process, the months of the endurance, the months of the strength, and then the months of the speed work. And there was always the, always the goals and a written program of, of um, you know, 13 weeks in advance. You know, so that every day I woke up and I knew exactly what I was going to do. I could mentally prepare myself for it, and um, and and so it was great. It was it was just great. I mean, it, it really helped a great deal to have that plan. Absolutely, I think a lot of people could benefit from more of a plan in their, in their lives and a, and a coach more like John. Yeah. Although although most aren't mm -hmm. so lucky. So you raced at the international level, as we've kind of mentioned from everything from 800 meters to the marathon. Uh, how did your training kind of adjust and progress as you moved up in distances? 
Uh, really, it didn't change until it came to the marathon, and really what that added was the, um, um, the long runs um, that's, you know, up to about 20 miles. And I, I really was never a real big mileage person, but um, that was really it. Uh, I, I hated, to be honest, I hated the marathons and I hated training for the marathons. I knew they were never going to be um, a huge success for me because I was mentally not into running that far. Um, I was so much more of a competitor and, um, you know, I, I just didn't have the patience to be a marathoner, to be honest, yeah. um, even though I did even though I did get a 231 out of myself, I was always miserable. <laughs> yeah. I hated them. <laughs> to sit for 20 miles before you can race. Yeah, exactly. So you also, as you mentioned, ran some cross-country races and a lot of road and a lot of track. Did your training change at all for different race surfaces? No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Um, when I was running the roads here in the States and I was preparing for the Commonwealth Games um, in Brisbane, Australia in 1982, John managed to mix my road training with my track. I mean, that was our deal, that the only reason I would come back and run the Commonwealth Games is that I could still continue to run the roads. And so he mixed it up really, really well. And uh, no, not really. I mean, I really at that point liked the hard surfaces. Um, I was pretty good cross-country runner, but my feet found the uneven surfaces pretty tough. I could never really last a full uh, season in New Zealand, but because I had the talent, they would always put me in the New Zealand cross-country team to go to the world cross-country, and um, I could manage you know, a few races, but I could never manage a full cross-country season because my feet couldn't handle it. Yeah, and everybody who's heard stories about cross-country running when you were doing it knows that... Uh Outside the U.S., cross-country running is a totally different thing. It's uh, it's a lot of mud. It's a lot of fences to jump over. and Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would have loved it here. You're right. Here, it's like running on golf courses. But, um, you know, being down in, in New Zealand now and running around my usual places, there's a place called Cornwall Park, and I remember that place being so muddy that the hills were so muddy, sometimes you would get almost to the top and slip all the way back down again and have to try again. <laughs> oh, man. That doesn't sound yeah. very fun. Ah, no, no, that's what real cross-country was. You're right, Concrete, uh, stone walls and, and uh, skies, and, and yep, you'd have to get to the walls ahead of everybody else to get over first. And what about strategy? Did you have strategies for different strategies for different race distances? No, I became a front runner very early on, and my whole concept was to get out and run as hard as I could every single race. I like to be out in front. A part of that also had to do with my feet. I, I needed to run smooth, and I hated being in a crowd, and so I taught myself to be a front runner and a really good pacemaker early on, and if I got beaten by a better athlete on the day, so be it, but I preferred to be out in front, and that's how I always ran. All right. Among some of your many, many race wins in the U.S., um, you won the Bloomsday Race in Spokane, Washington, seven times in 10 years. So that kind of dominance at a single race is pretty rare at the time and is just about unheard of today. Uh, what, why did you come back to that race every, all, you know, every year for so long? Well, a part of it was to do with our plan, to be honest. John and I would sit down every January when I was back in New Zealand and look at the season and it was our goal to keep winning these races as many times as I could and a lot of it had to do with the contract that I set up with Nike is I was not an American athlete so they weren't going to pay me a, a great amount of money so I set up a contract that was very much bonus oriented 
that if I had repeat wins at these races that Nike sponsored, and Nike sponsored Balloons Day for a long time, um, that I got extra money for winning again. So I purposely set up a contract that was uh, like that and was bonus-oriented, and Balloons Day is not the only race that I won seven times. I won the Cleveland Marathon 10K seven times and Virginia 10 mile of six, and, and so I would set up um, my contract that way, and then John and I, uh, would have our plan for the year, and we never deviated from the plan. So that kept me healthy and consistent also. So it was our plan to keep winning, um, and uh, and we did. Absolutely. So somebody, a couple people who I interviewed recently were uh, were Kim Jones and her husband, John Sinclair. Can you tell the, yeah. uh, the story of how you met Kim Jones for us? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kim and I met at my first bloom today, and nobody knew who I was. I'd only been in the country about five weeks, and uh, I had come to Bloom's Day and asked Don Cardong, who's the founder of Bloom's Day, if I could come to the race because it had been recommended to me. And he didn't have any money left to help me out, so I caught a train, and the deal was that if I finished in the top three, he'd reimburse my train fare. So I came up, and, and I ended up winning Bloom's Day, much to the shock of everybody, and I was sitting on the side of a street in a gutter, um, you know, just after the race, kind of, and, and um, Kim sat down next to me, and we just started chatting, and, and she says, well, I just ran this for the first time today, and and uh, I used to run in, in high school, and so I asked her how she did and how she used to run, and, and she said how she'd given it up, but she'd been persuaded to, to run Bloom's Day that day, and, and I said to her at that point, well, you could be, you know, turn out to be a pretty good runner if you ran those times in high school. You should really start running again and, and get involved in road racing, and uh, so at that point, she says, well, did you run today? And I go, yeah. And she says, well, how did you do? I said, I won. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but our conversation was really about me just saying, you know what, if you ran, I ran those kind of those times in high school too. You should really start running again. And she did. I love that story. thought it would be interesting to hear it from, uh, from both of your perspectives. Well, I think she wrote about it in her book that just came out last year. Yeah, and we, and we and I just interviewed her not too long ago, and she this is of course one of the stories she told. Yeah, yeah, and of course John was my training mate. I mean, John trained under John Davies for many, many years, and would join me down here in, in um, New Zealand uh, through the summer, and and uh, and we won Bloom's Day twice um, for John Davies, the two of us on on the same day. So, so those two, those two are great buddies from years ago. And so I wanted to, this just came to me, I wanted to ask you something that I asked, uh, that I asked John as well. John Sinclair talked about how John Davies was always talking about which race do you want to do the best at? And his answer was, well, it's not really one, it's more like six. How did, how did you handle that with wanting to run a lot of races in the U.S.? Yeah, John Davies had to come to terms with that because it was new for all of us, you know, because up until then particularly the Lydiard method, was you had that big goal, and that was the goal, and the rest of the races you used to, to get ready for them. It was a little easier for me because I could go back to New Zealand and run a track season and get qualified for New Zealand teams. And and really what helped me was that, you know, getting into the Olympics in the 10,000 metres, well, that's pretty much the same distance I was racing on the roads, and so it made it a lot easier um, but yeah, John Davies had to uh, change his kind of thoughts 
um, about the fact that we were racing sometimes every two weeks, sometimes every weekend, but that there was a road racing season. And so what we came to terms with was that we would race until the end of June and then we would take July to kind of calm down a little and take a bit of a rest and then we would race again in August and September. And so we broke the year up um, and that's what I did and I think John Sinclair did the same thing. And that allowed John Davies because he was into us needing a rest at some point. And so, you know, we compromised with it, but it was new to all of us because it was how we were trying to earn our living. Yeah, and that's that was a... That sounds like an interesting conversation. He had to have an interesting conversation with any of his people who wanted to do that. So you said you mentioned that you came to the U.S. in 1981, and uh, the uh, 1981 was the year of the Cascade Runoff Race in Portland, where you became uh, literally the first female runner to ever earn prize money for winning a race. Uh, tell us about that kind of process and how it and how it came to be. Well, as I said, I'd only been in the States a short time and was running out of my own personal money. And yes, the sport was completely amateur and um, the men in particular, and particularly on the track circuit in Europe, were getting under the table payments to uh, race in Europe. The women pretty much struggled, um, never really got anything. And uh, of course, Phil Knight, who's the founder and CEO of Nike, wanted to sell more running shoes, but he couldn't use the athletes as endorsees. Uh, or endorsers of it, of his shoes, and so um, he wanted to turn the sport professional. And he said he was going to put on a race. Well, the Cascade Runoff did exist, but he got uh, the guys um, involved with it to um, take the chance that uh, he would donate fifty thousand dollars in prize money, and that um, it would be ten thousand dollars first place and going down to tenth um, for both male and female and encourage all the athletes that were running at that time to come to the race uh, to uh, you know, accept the prize money or make the stand, as you might say. So I had always believed that I had a chance, if I ever had a chance to earn money out of my talent, I would take it. But you know, I was nobody. Um, I'd just been here a few months at that point. But I went to Portland, and the night before, we were all asked to sign a document to say that we understood the consequences of accepting money the next day, that if we accepted the check, the, um, the uh, consequences were that we would be banned from the sport, um, and that we all understood that. And so, okay, I was fine with that. So the next day, I'm running the race, and of course, Cascade is pretty much five miles up, um, and then four miles down in Portland, Oregon. And I was a very strong uphill runner, and I found myself leading up the hill, so I just went for it and ended up winning the race. And I crossed the finish line, and there was a telegram in those days from um, the New Zealand Federation saying I was now banned from the sport, and I was in really in trouble with immigration because I was only here on a visitor's visa, and it's illegal to earn any money on a visitor's visa. And, of course, the tax department wanted their 33%. And... Uh, so at 25 years of age, I was in a foreign country and in a lot of trouble. And um, But it, it worked out. I mean, Phil Knight got his legal team behind it. And in the end, I was the only one that was banned worldwide because the Americans that took money just got suspended because of your constitution. But it took about 18 months of wrangling um, to get it all worked out. And in the process, American race directors also wanted the sport to be more open 
So I was accepted into some American road races and was able to race through the end of 1981. But at the end of 1981, American immigration told me I had to leave and not to come back until I had the right visa to come back on. <laughs> so, so goes, you know, it, it, it wasn't easy. And so, so what goes through your head when you're pretty much informed you just won a race, and now you're banned from this from this sport that you're that you that you love. I think I was fine because I I just was trusting a lot of people that it was all going to work out, and um, I truly I, I mean I really stood up for it. There was a lot of controversy, a lot of headlines um, in New Zealand. It was back and forth, you know, a lot of people for us, a lot of people against us. Um, the same in the United States. I mean, it was U.S. track and field. And the powers that be there were certainly against it happening, but I think there were enough people on the other side to really, you know, push it. And obviously, Phil Knight had the power to do it, and and uh, and the race directors were all for it. So, in some respects, it got taken out of my hands pretty quickly. Um, and as long as I was still able to run, now the hardest part was actually going back to New Zealand, and the New Zealand Federation wouldn't even let me step on a running track. Uh, so the hardest part was New Zealand, actually. The, the United States race directors still let me run. Yeah, that must be kind of nerve-wracking or frustrating, if nothing else. So, yeah, it was. So tell us about the race that you founded. The, uh, it, was, it was called the Idaho Women's Fitness Celebration 5K. I know it has a different name now. Um, how did that come to be, and how did it evolve? Well, when I retired in early 1992, it was a decision of whether to stay in the United States or go back to New Zealand. And I'd been asked to start a big event in Boise, which is where I was based um, here in the United States for all the years that I raced. And I decided to stay and begin an event. And the reason I thought about making it an all-women's event is back then, um, uh, there weren't very many women's only events, and most of them were highly competitive. And my thought was there's so many women over the age of 40 that won't even come out and enter a road race because of men being involved. So it was a lot to do with all ages, all abilities thought, but 5K is very achievable for all ages and abilities, and so I wanted to create an atmosphere where all those ladies would come out. And it was very successful. It got as high as 17,000 women in the late 1990s. And, um, but then I uh, actually got married and moved to southern Indiana, and I couldn't keep leading the whole process um, from that distance. So I got it in the hands of the local hospital there, and which I was very happy with, but they didn't choose the right leadership to maintain um, the standard. And it slowly started you know, diminishing in numbers and losing its thrill and excitement. And you know, it really just got to the point it was going downhill. And I'm just not a person that accepts that kind of thing particularly when my name's involved with something. And so I fought really hard, I think it's two years ago now, to get them to understand that they had to hire a person who knew the business, and that's what they did. Now, you fast forward 20 years from 1993, and, you know, the sport has changed, and grandmothers are doing triathlons. So an all-women's event is not so necessary anymore. And so we've decided to turn it around and make it co-ed and add the 10K and the half marathon and, and turn it into Boise's big um, fitness initiative year-round. And so that's the evolution of it. That's pretty. Uh, that's a very 
interesting uh, interesting process. I'm sure I'm sure it was quite difficult for you to to get to get going from Indiana anyway. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It the, was. The it was town, no, no easy task. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So yeah, the town I live in is a is a big uh, is a big triathlon town. There's an Ironman event here, and um, consequently, of course, several several shorter triathlons, and there are crazy participation numbers and crazy age group numbers. Yeah, it's very it's it's very interesting for this uh, for for all kinds of endurance sports that you have. Yes, the the I want to say the most competitive age group out there is probably women's like. 55 to 60 or something like that. Yep, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, tell us about the documentary film that was filmed that was made about you. Well, I actually initiated that. Because I uh, there was a young couple out of Utah who had done some music videos and been pretty successful and wanted to try their chance at maybe doing a documentary. And I had a lot of people ask about my book and, you know, it should be a film. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult, you know. There's a lot of people in this country that can get a film made about them and, and not being, I am an American citizen now, but my story is so much of another country as well. Anyway, they decided they would do it and we put together a budget and I managed to raise some sponsorship to get it done. And, you know, it was done and in, in, um, completed in 2009 and, it's, it's, it's been done pretty well by a young couple who were new to it, but I haven't done anything with it yet in terms of selling it or launching it or anything like that. Um, so it's kind of just sitting there with me trying to come up with a plan of what nurse to do with it now. But um, I've shown it at some events uh, just as a prior to the event where I show it and do some speaking, but I've not duplicated or tried to sell it yet. have any plans to? I would like to. I would sure like the genius that could tell me how to do it because I'm not <laughs> I'm not experienced and I I don't want it kind of up on YouTube before I figure out a way to make it work for me. So yes, I would certainly like to because um, my book came out in 2000 and I lost a lot of opportunity there because the co-author got ill and didn't really do anything with it. So now I've got a whole bunch of books sitting in my basement and I don't want the same thing to happen to the documentary. So I'm trying to work out how to market it or how on earth what the first steps are <laughs> maybe maybe somebody listening can <laughs> yeah maybe let's hope so yeah so one thing you mentioned about the documentary is that you're uh, you're very much a product of two countries so or at least originally uh, you're from a very small country where there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of athletes at the at the level you you were at so you must have had incredible, enormous pressure, pardon me, to perform anytime you raced. Um, how, how did you manage having expect, kind of quote-unquote expectations of your whole country behind you? Well, it's, I guess it all comes down how you handle it. For me, really, it was so exciting. I mean, New Zealand is a, just a huge sporting nation in, in terms of enthusiasm for all sports. And... That's why we actually have a sports hall of fame instead of an individual sports hall of fame um, because there are so many talented sports people here in every sport around the world and so they created a sports hall of fame for the ones that got to the very, very top and it's very difficult to get into. Um, and for me it's, it's just amazing because you just get so much support. Now it's hard in the 
respect that when I was really at my top, there wasn't a lot of privacy. I would be out training on the roads around Auckland um, and people with their children would stop their cars and get out with the kids and want a photograph and an autograph and you're in the middle of a 20-mile run. And, you know, going to the uh, supermarket, I would kind of try and disguise myself sometimes. So in that respect, because it's a small country, uh, every time, you know, it's just one national newspaper and one big sporting radio station and, you know, two television stations. I mean, every time you were interviewed, it went nationwide. So in that respect, you're living in a little bit of a bubble, but it's, it's really quite nice because up in the United States, I could live in Boise, Idaho all the years I did and no one knew I existed. So in some respects, you know, the few months that I was down here was enough to get all that attention and then I would slip back into the United States and be able to train in peace. <laughs> Which is something most elite athletes, I think, spend a lot of time uh, seeking. Yes. So when most people think of, you know, training meccas or training hubs or whatever, they don't really think of Boise, Idaho. What made what made you choose Boise as a place to settle down and, and have your base when you were racing? I started off in Denver, Colorado, and I really enjoyed Denver a great deal. But I also had a tremendous amount of success in those first three years. And um, John Sinclair lived up in Fort Collins, and he had a whole bunch of guys up there that he trained with. And he was trying to get me out of Denver and to go to Fort Collins. And John Davies said that there was no way that I could go and do that, that I would destroy myself trying to train with the guys. And I didn't like all the attention. Oh, I shouldn't say I didn't like it. The attention I was getting in Denver, I had a whole bunch of people wanting to train with me all the time, and I always preferred to train alone. So I got in, I visited Boise on my way through from Portland, Oregon, and had got to take a look at it and realized it was so similar to Boulder, Colorado, and with fewer people. And that's why I moved there in 1984. It was um, I loved all the opportunities to train up in the hills. I could still get up to altitude like Colorado. And really it was a smaller version of Boulder in 1984 and that's why I went there. And was was altitude training something you you enjoyed doing or or did you strategically do it or how did that how did you no. work that into your plan? No, no, John and I decided that whatever I did at sea level, I'd do at altitude, and we never, ever considered that I was at altitude. He'd just give me the same workouts, and we'd do them, and really all I did when I got to Boise in the summertime is I'd often go and do my long run up on the top of the, hill, the foothills there, which in the wintertime there's a ski field, and I'd go up there just truly because it was just absolutely beautiful and you could get up out of the city and it was a bit cooler up there but I never really thought I was up there because it was altitude so we blocked altitude out of our minds and didn't let it become any big issue um, with regards training. Okay and talk about training alone. Um, there's Nowadays of course a lot of people do train alone but there's also all kinds of groups at all kinds of different levels everywhere you everywhere you look pretty much there's one why did you prefer to train alone as opposed to with other people because I think it taught me how to pace make myself and it helped me be a front runner like I was that I wasn't relying on anybody else to pace me in any way I think um, you know this is one time I ran a 10,000 meters down in New Zealand practically solo and John timed every single lap um, for to show how 
steady I was. And I and we both believe that that's because I trained alone, that I taught myself to pacemake very, very well and that I never relied on anybody else in a race. I knew exactly what I was capable of doing and pretty much in one of another way ran the races alone too. Um, and that it really helped me to be a front runner. Yeah, especially if you're if you're if you like to lead, then you're definitely going to be doing some running alone. Yes. <laughs> so, so, what advice would you give to somebody who's preparing for their first race, whatever distance it might be? Oh, I think you um, certainly don't put a lot of pressure on yourself to. You really get it out of the way, and it's, it's a learning experience. Every single one that you go into is you're still going to learn something about yourself. And you've really just got to be prepared to look at it that way. And, and the first one in particular is like no pressure. Just You're obviously going to make mistakes because you're such a novice. Um, but you've really got to uh, you learn the most about yourself in the training process, I think. Um, by the time you get to the race, um, it should all be in preparation. And you should be ready to go and accept whatever consequences and learn uh, from what you experience but really the preparation is what it's all about, and so you learn the most about yourself um, in the training process. Well, very good. I just want to do a, like a quick, little, quick few questions to end, to end this off. What was your pre-race meal? Uh, in terms of road racing, nothing. No? <laughs> because the races were so early in the morning, so nothing, nothing at all. All right. Um, and uh, um, in terms of New Zealand, when... Uh, all our races are in the evening. Um, it was a whole different process. So it was pretty much breakfast and lunch, um, but no dinner um, when I was racing back in New Zealand. Um, right. But it, I had to completely change my whole psyche when I was back here because all our races, particularly the track races, they're all at uh, 8 and 9 o'clock at night for the distance runs. And what was your favorite workout when you were training? Oh, I think I really liked um, hill reps. A lot. I think I found them to really do the most for me um, almost immediately. Um, John really, really believed in hill repeats that were kind of like about a 50 meter long hill that was very steep and that was a workout where you really kind of showed effects, positive effects really quickly. So that was one that I, you know, not only enjoyed but I could really tell um, helped me a great deal. And your favorite race to run? Uh, I would have to say Bloomsday, even though I did have um, the same level of success in, in Cleveland. I could probably say the two of them, and a lot of it was to do with the people as well. Um, I've stayed friends with Jack Staff in Cleveland. I still go back to Cleveland every single year. He brings me back, and I work with the kids' events there for him. Um, and so I, I would say that, you know, but it was a lot of it was to do with people, and so a lot of my favorite races, I'm still in touch with the, the people that were involved as well. And what do you do for fun, both now and when you were training? Well, I'm a very avid reader, um, and so I, that got me through, um, you know, sitting in hotel rooms waiting to race. is like I'd put myself in a book and uh, to clear my mind. And now my husband and I, um, I'm in Indiana, and he's an IU grad, and we're season tickets to basketball, and we oh. love live sporting events, and so we try and get ourselves to as many live sporting events as possible. That's our hobby. And finally, what race did you never get to run but would have loved to run? If there's oh, one. Oh, I would, I would have liked 
the Olympic Games to have included the five and ten thousand meters sooner than they did. Those for women. Th- those were a little more your forte than the fifteen hundred or the or the marathon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in 84, if they put in the 5 and 10, I was in my element then. Now, who knows what the results would have been, but, you know, at that point, I'd had the world record in the 5,000 meters, and I was number two in the world in the 10. And they just put in the marathon. And if that had, you know, happened, who knows? But it didn't. And so, uh, but that would have been interesting. And 3,000 was a little short for you? Yes. Okay. It was at that point, yeah. Although that, I would look back and say that's my biggest mistake that John and I made was I should have stayed at the 3,000 meters for one more year um, because that's the distance that the gal that I beat to win the Commonwealth Games gold medal in 82 got the silver medal in Los Angeles in the 3,000 meters. And that was, and so, I love watching that race video. That was an awesome yeah. video. <laughs> but then again, but then again, you know, Lucas, I would have been out there fighting Mary for the lead, and that mightn't have gone down too well. <laughs> no, maybe not. Although, <laughs> although, as you said, who knows? Who knows? So I would have been better off in the five and ten, I think, uh, at that point. So. <laughs> All right. So, is there any final advice you have to our listeners before we before we uh, let you go for the rest of the day? Well, I just, you know, after all these years, um, I still love to run. It's still the most cost-effective health care that we've all got for ourselves. And so anybody listening that hasn't been become a runner yet, start being a walker and then learn to love to run. And I think it's the best thing we've all got going for us health and fitness-wise. Sounds like pretty good advice for anybody. Well, Anne, um, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. And um, I think it was. I think a lot of people will will get a lot of benefit out of our talk. All right. I appreciate it, Lucas. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.